Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this, the first historical group lecture of 2012. Ron Smith is an aeronautical engineer, private pilot, aircraft owner, photographer, and author. He currently works for BAA Systems Global Combat Systems in the UK and Sweden, but much of his career has been involved with rotorcraft. Um, he has an MSc in rotorcraft and V-stall aircraft and a PhD based on research on boundary layer control. Um, in the past, he's been head of future projects at Westland Helicopters, chairman of the Society's Rotorcraft Committee, and a member of the American Helicopter Society's Technical Council. He's a current member of the Royal Aeronautical Society's Historical Group Committee, and his books include um, the Cessna 172, A Pocket History, and a five-volume series, of which you've just seen one volume, entitled British Built Aircraft. He's therefore the ideal person to speak on the subject of Air London's aircraft manufacturers, and I now invite him to do so. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. There is a small caveat, which is to say that uh, all the opinions expressed are my own and um, should not be taken to be those of BAE Systems. And um, I would also say that the evolution, sorry, the, the development of London's aircraft industry and manufacturing history is a somewhat daunting subject. In fact, it's large enough that you could write a book about it. Um, <laughs> So, therefore, we have to, to at least think about how I'm going to approach this very large subject. And what I've decided to do is to start with a few words about the development of London as such, and also to define the area which I'm actually covering. Then I'll briefly mention some of London's um, airfields and flying grounds, and set the scene for the development of the broader aircraft industry. And whilst I'm doing that, I shall, shall try to pick out things that are specifically relevant to London as far as I can. And towards the end of the talk, I'll go through the major manufacturers in London, which I call the Big Five in best kind of aeronautical safari speak. The Big Five in this particular context are Graham White, Handley Page, Airco, or the de Havilland, and the de Havilland Aircraft Company, um, at Ferry Aviation and Sopworth Stroke Hawker. So those companies, because their history extends over much of the total period when aircraft have been built in this country, I'll be wrapping them up towards the end of the lecture, together with the review of lots of other manufacturers in London that may be less familiar, some of their advertising slogans, and a few oddities. So hopefully this will spark your interest and focus on a few things that you don't already know. So we start off with this map. This is the map of the boroughs within the Greater London Council. And for reasons that now escape me, I chose to use this as the basis of my research on, on, of aircraft built in London. And as you can see, the shape is not particularly regular, and therefore there are some airfields and manufacturers that fall just outside this region that you might 
think I've left out. But actually, I'm fully aware of those, and I will try to mention a few of the locations that are nearby as we, as I talk. So there are places like Denham, Hatfield, Radlett, uh, Langley, Leavesden, Brooklands, Rochester, and so on, that are close to London, but not within the boundary of the old Greater London Council. So having um, given that caveat, I came to the conclusion thinking about it that for a modern audience I would have been far better to say it's either inside the M25 or outside the M25. <laughs> However, uh, this picture is to say a little bit more than that and although it's a bit faint, this boundary here is the current built-up boundary of London and the solid region is the built-up area of London in 1912. And I think you can see immediately the enormous countryside areas uh, to the northwest, to the east, and less so to the southwest. But there is significant space out here. Hendon uh, was very much a, uh, a country location, and you will see towards the end of the lecture, I have a slide of an early photo, which shows an early photograph of Stag Lane, and I think you'll be very surprised just exactly how rural London was, or that area was. I think the other thing to, to remember is that unlike today where London is mainly seen to be a centre of the financial uh, industry, at that time it was very much a manufacturing centre. And because it was a manufacturing centre, with special companies specialising in furniture and coachworks and metalworks, sheet metal fabrication and so on, um, it was very important during the First World War in terms of the actual manufacture of aircraft. And that will, I hope, become apparent during my talk. So let's think about London's airfields and flying grounds. Now, some of these will be familiar and some of them will probably be quite unfamiliar. Acton Aviation Ground... Uh, the Alliance Aircraft Company were there. Um, Barking was used for a brief period by Handley Page before he moved to Cricklewood. Uh, AV Road had experiments at um, Hackney, Lee Marches. Um, Ferry Aviation used a number of sites, including Harmondsworth, Hayes and Heston. Uh, we'll hear quite a bit about uh, Hendon. Kenley only gets a passing mention here because it was not associated with manufacturers other than being an aircraft acceptance park. So a lot of aircraft will have gone to Kenley prior to going out to Royal Flying Corps. Um, so really that's just a, a snapshot. Uh, there are 16 airfields within this London area mentioned there. Uh, and I suspect that a few of those are not immediately familiar. So... To give the overall context, I'm going to talk about the stages of the development of the industry. And there was an initial experimentation with the pioneers prior to the First World War. And then a very rapid expansion, mass production is the right, exactly the right word, during the First World War. And I, I shall provide quite a lot of uh, information about that because it's very germane to the growth of aircraft manufacturing in London. After the war there was a fantastic collapse in the number of aircraft being used, and I should say something about that, uh, which will be an interesting contrast compared with what one thinks of as a modern-day recession. 
however, during that period, there were um, new developments. There was the emergence of a new private aircraft industry, which really didn't exist before. And then, fairly shortly, there was the, the decision to enter rearmament, set up shadow factories, and prepare for the next conflict. Then, obviously, the post-war period uh, leads into the big rationalisation of the industry that produced the British Aircraft Corporation and Hawker Siddeley. And that takes us really up to the formation of British Aerospace. Now, because of the emphasis in terms of the scale of manufacturing production in London, the main focus of my lecture will be very much towards the earlier period than the later period. Um, so I think, uh, I still think there'll be a lot of interest in it. So I've decided to do a quick kind of orientation, couple of slides, which talk about the industry in London, and then we'll look more broadly. So during that pioneering period, there was flying at Hendon, um, Hackney and Barking, and construction um, with Handley Page and Cricklewood, and the Sopwith um, organisation in Kingston. And most of the early flying was actually conducted outside of this specific London area, although at least in modern terms, not very far away. So the Isle of Sheppey, uh, Brooklands and Farnborough were important centres, together with others such as uh, Shoreham, for example. But um, there was a very significant activity outside of London, but close by, as well as the London activity per se. Then, as I've already alluded, there was a massive expansion of production during the First World War that built directly upon London's existing industrial base, albeit that those companies had not previously built aircraft. Uh, we also saw new companies being founded in order to enter the industry, like Ferry Aviation, for example. And um, perhaps a word that's too easily used, an exponential growth of manufacture, but I will actually show some data which um, perhaps justifies the use of that uh, adjective. Between the wars, there was this um, enormous collapse immediately after the First World War, and the availability of large amounts of surplus materiel um, for sale by the aircraft disposal company at Croydon meant that there was very little demand for new aircraft construction although some companies managed to, to fare quite well. And what we see in this period is that that development of the built area of London was happening in the, in the period running up to the 1930s. And so these companies that had been operating and flying aircraft from within London started <coughs> to move their operational sites to the outskirts of London. So uh, Hawker um, built aircraft at Kingston and... Um, they were flown at various other various airfields like Brooklands and later on at Langley. Uh, Handley Page moved their operations, their flying operations, to Radlett, um, just to the north of London, although they continued manufacturing components in um, Cricklewood. And de Havilland were building aircraft at Stag Lane, uh, but then in about 1936, I think, moved their main operations to Hatfield. And ferry aviation pretty much stayed 
in London throughout its um, activities. The other thing that happened between the wars is that the light aircraft market sprang up with de Havilland's at Stag Lane and a number of other companies at both Hanworth and Heston. And there was a little bit of contract production of things like Hawker Hearts by companies like General Aircraft Limited. So between the wars, we have a bit of a lull of activity other than the emergence of the light aircraft market. And during the Second World War, the Hawker factory carried on producing uh, components of aircraft at Kingston. Hanley Page was doing <coughs> component production at Crickerwood. There were also dispersed production around the country. Uh, the companies like General Aircraft and Heston Aircraft that had been involved in contract production picked up some more. And there was also a significant body of, of repair of damaged aircraft. Then after the war, Crickerwood actually continued producing parts for Handy Page right up into the point where the company collapsed and was wound up in 1969. Uh, Ferry Aviation produced the Gannett anti-submarine aircraft uh, and then moved to helicopter production at Hayes having been taken into the Westland family in 1960. But they continued producing aircraft up to the, um, the Puma helicopter until 1972 at Hayes. And by that time, the only continuing production was uh, at Kingston, initially with Hawker, then Hawker Sidley Aviation, and then British Aerospace up to the closure in 1992 at which point aircraft manufacture in London, I think, can be said to have ceased. So, we'll now take a step back and look specifically at the pioneers. In the early days, it was an enormous challenge to, to fly an aeroplane. You had to be a really uh, competent entrepreneur because you had to work out how you were going to uh, power the machine with a suitably light engine, with a structure that didn't keep breaking, that you could control and which had adequate stability. And at the same time, you had to learn to fly it. And you had to do all of this without running out of money. And uh, so as a result, there were relatively few people who could put that all together. And um, so there are really tremendous challenges combined with a, a lack of knowledge. So, for example... It took a while before people realised you needed to take off and land into wind. Uh, there are numerous instances of people having problems where the aircraft didn't become airborne. and uh, This is blamed on there being no lift in the air, probably because he was taking off downwind. <coughs> it's also rather sobering to see that as late as 1914, there were people being killed because they simply fell off their aircraft, being not secured in any way. And in fact, there's an interesting um, book by F. Warren Miriam, who is an instructor at the Bristol School at Brooklands, which shows a number of photographs of slightly damaged aircraft, which in today's terms would be no more than somebody doing a heavy landing and collapsing their nose wheel on landing, which were nevertheless fatal, mainly because people were being thrown out and were completely unprotected. And another area of unfamiliarity was flight controls because when the Eastbourne Aviation Company monoplane flew with ailerons flight was somewhat dismissive they said well this is a bit of a departure from the norm 
um, from what has become standard practice on monoplanes, which was, of course, wing warping. However, it is a system which works quite well on machines of the biplane type. And um, there's no reason why it should not be equally successful when applied to monoplanes. So you can see that, that they thought this was a bit of a retrograde step, although you wouldn't think so today. And then finally, we should reflect on the fact that uh, one in 16 of those that held Royal Aero Club certificates before the First World War were killed from the death of Rolls in 1911 through to 1914. So this is a clear reflection of the dangers and the lack of maturity. And it's not just about being clever with your design. You really are standing into danger flying these aircraft. And I think a number of people have found to their cost that if you try to produce a replica aircraft that is very true to the original, you end up in the same difficulty. There, I heard somebody give a talk about a Blerio monoplane replica that was supposed to be very good, and I can't imitate. He's, he, this chap was talking to a French pilot, and the French pilot, whose accent I would not attempt, said, believe me, Russell, I was 50 metres behind the aeroplane. <laughs> OK, so just through some of the locations that I've mentioned, the Isle of Sheppey is important because... In early in 1909, the Short brothers contracted with the Wright brothers to build six Wright biplanes under license. And they set up their factory at Laysdown on the Isle of Sheppey, and they later, later moved to East Church. And the factory was set up in February 1909, and by August 1909, they had 80 people employed doing nothing other than build aeroplanes. So that's quite a significant uh, effort, really. The site became the focus of flying by the Aero Club, which later became the Royal Aero Club. And also, there was naval interest on Sheppey, and so the early flying associated with the Royal Naval Air Service was also um, pretty much focused in that area. Shorts later moved closer to London, to Rochester and the Medway, Rochester Airfield, for the uh, conventional aeroplanes and the Medway for their flying boats and, and float planes. Uh, so that's Sheppey. Closer to London, we have Farnborough, where Cody was experimenting initially with gliders and kites, um, but the British Army aeroplane number one was flying successfully by October 1908. And... Um, he produced a number of other machines, and so here we have his um, military trials monoplane of 1912. Uh, this aircraft is de Havilland's second aircraft, uh, also somewhat disguised in its um, origins by called, being called the Royal Aircraft Factory FE1, um, and that's at Farnborough, where the Royal Aircraft Factory was based um, having been set up as such in April 1912. And de Havilland was a designer there and was also responsible for the design of the BE-2. And so the, um, the Royal Aircraft Factory made an enormous contribution uh, to the design of successful aircraft during the First World War, notably perhaps the FE-2 and the SE-5A, which was a, a really excellent fighter. So perhaps the next... Really, the next really important place is Brooklands. And I'd just like to make some small links to London here. 
Um, at the top left, we have TOM Sopwith and his first aircraft, which is a Howard Wright biplane built in London. Uh, to the right here, we have some Vickers monoplanes. Now, the, the Vickers monoplanes and Vick early Vickers aircraft were built at and flown from Joyce Green, which, whilst it's not in London, is just inside the M25 below the Dartford Crossing Bridge. And the aircraft would fly there and then come over to Brooklands to take part in the flying school that Vickers were running there. And um, this aircraft is the Avro Type D, um, which Avro used throughout the First World War to advertise the fact that they were the pioneers of the tractor biplane somewhat forgetting that, that his initial success, of course, was with triplanes. Um, however, those triplanes were built in London and Putney and tested at Hackney and Wembley and so on before um, he settled at Brooklands. The last machine here is more obscure. It's um, the Erdley Billing, or later called Percival Biplane, which flew in May 1911, just one month after the uh, Avro. And I think the fact that there's a fair amount of luck involved in whether you're successful in this game is, is reflected by the fact that this is a very practical work-like aeroplane that, that is not substantially different in concept from the Avro Type D. And yet this is the foundation of an industry, of a company that lasted successfully for years. And this pretty much disappeared without trace. So now we get on to London as such. Now, Hendon was the site of the London Aerodrome, which was set up by Graham White in October 1910. And I shall say more about the Graham White Company specifically later. Uh, two <coughs> things about Hendon. It was very much used for flying schools, both before the First World War and during the First World War. And so we see some examples here with the the Beatty Flying School, who were flying a fairly antiquated Wright biplane, Wright-type Model A, I think. Um, we have a company called the Aircraft Company, who were concessionaires for Henry and Morris Farman, and uh, they eventually transformed themselves into the de Havilland Aircraft Company Limited. And then we have the Blerio School at Hendon, offering you complete tuition for £75, um, and uh, £10 return to the, to the pupil if he obtains his pilot certificate without breakages. <laughs> so, uh, you know, interesting place. So the other thing about Hendon, as well as the flying schools, was that Graham White was a bit of a showman. He'd earned a lot of money in the United States displaying aircraft, and he came back and used the money to set up the aerodrome and his company, and he then ran weekly flying meetings, which were very much publicized in the press and probably did more than any other single thing to popularize, popularize flying and bring it to the public imagination. Now, clearly, that's a little canter around the places. I'd just like to sh show uh, a list of some of the, some of the pioneers. Um, some of these will be uh, unfamiliar. Uh, Mr. H.J.D. H. Astley, for example, the first old Etonian to land an aeroplane on the school playing fields. <laughs> I'm not sure how many others there have been. <laughs> um, Horatio Barber set up the Aeronautical Syndicate Limited initially at Lark Hill and then um, 
under the, under the railway arches at Battersea. Um, George Diet, uh, his, his monoplane toured the United States and then eventually ended up based at Shoreham. But we start, within this list, there are a few familiar names. You can see, um, Jeffrey de Havilland, Richard Ferry, Handy Page, and A.V. Rowe, T.O.M. Sopwith. So the point here is that there were several other locations in which aircraft were being built. There was a range from the very successful to the quite unsuccessful, but many of the key names of the industry were already active. And the comprehensive reference on this period, which I have to give complete credit to, is a book by Goodhall and Tagg, and it's called British Aircraft Before the Great War. It has everything. It has every flying bicycle, you know, bicycle with wings attached. I think in a book this thick, there are only six objects that they failed to identify. So, so a, a massive piece of work, and anybody that's interested in aviation in Britain uh, before the Great War um, should really look out for that book. It's expensive, but it's worth it. So, um, my thesis essentially is that most of what we see as being the British aircraft industry was actually built on the foundations of individuals who were flying aircraft before the First World War. So we have the names there, Schultz, Avro, Sopwith, Hawker, Blackburn, De Havilland, Ferry, Handley Page, and so on. And to that list, you can add Henry Folland, who was with the Royal Aircraft Factory from 1912, George Carter, who was later designer at Gloucester's, um, J.D. North, who uh, was at Graham White and later at Bolton Pool, and Noel Pemberton Billing, whose company subsequently became the Supermarine Aviation Company once Pemberton Billing had entered Parliament. So the industry comes from this first pre-First World War period. The war itself, however, was very, very important to the development of the aeroplane. And the military use of the aeroplane really started off supporting the army. What's the enemy doing? Where are his reserves? Uh, where's his artillery? And so on. And, um, of course, once you started doing this and being useful at doing it, you attracted the attention of the enemy. And so here's a nice quote from General Fompilo saying, uh, the main object of fighting in the air is to allow photographic reconnaissance, essentially, and at the same time prevent that of the enemy. So basically, as soon as you had successful photographic reconnaissance, you have fighters to go and stop them. And once you had fighters and they were being a nuisance, you might just as well bomb their airfields. Uh, of course, the other thing that was happening was that Britain was subject to a blockade by U-boats, and it was really very successful. And there was a significant amount of energy put into both um, airship and seaplane and, and flying boat operations during the war to try to do something about submarines. Um, of course, airships were also coming over at night and dropping bombs on London, so that there was um, an effort to produce night fighters or the ability to at least try and shoot down the airships at night. So those roles, if you just add military transports, air-to-air refuelling and search and rescue, these roles are most of the things that a modern air force does. And because of the extent to which 
these roles became important to both sides. There was enormous growth in production. And in order to support that, you similarly needed to train new pilots. So training aircraft and training schools were also very much part of the mix. And to put that in context, here's something rather interesting on loss rates. The average life of the aeroplane at the battlefront is not more than two months, during which time it will need at least, at least two motors. Uh, so in order to sustain this fleet, 5,000 aircraft, you need to produce 30,000 aircraft and 60,000 engines a year. Now, in 1918, just 10 years after the first flight of an aircraft in Britain, we produced 30,000 aircraft and 60,000 engines in the year. So that um, is pretty staggering. Losses in every month were equal to the entire strength of the RFC at the start of the war. And um, this was from an answer to a question in the air estimates debate in 1918. During 1917, more men were lost in the training schools than were killed on all battlefronts, which I think reflects the fact that despite all this enormous growth and use of the aircraft, we were still at a very primitive stage of the industry. Bit of light relief here. Um, these are a couple of the civilian flying schools, and um, they continued until August 1916 when the government sort of took over the control of the flying schools. And here are two of the schools at Hendon. There's the Beatty School, who were using codrons and these Wright biplanes, and the Hall School. And um, the Hall School says um, was the effect that... Uh, Tractor biplanes fitted throughout with standard controls, which you certainly couldn't say of the right machine. And, um, and on the other hand, the Beatty School says, uh, our machines are of two distinct types, hence the training we give is more thorough and comprehensive than can be obtained elsewhere. <laughs> so there was a little bit of knocking copy even then. And it is quite interesting that this stuff was all going out in the press, or at least in, in the aviation magazines of the time, the aeroplane and flight and so on. And they really were touting for business with some quite imaginative slogans and some really quite attractive advertisements, and I'll show you some more later on. So I've alluded to the growth of aircraft production, and here are some numbers from a parliamentary paper published in April 1919. But I've also put these into a graph. I think it's worth seeing them. In four years the establishment of the flying services increased 80-fold and the production rate increased more than 50-fold. And that looks like that. And the point to, to recognize is this is a true zero axis. This isn't some displaced origin, which is what you typically get when people show you these kinds of growth. This is exponential growth by anybody's imagination. So quite significant. Here we are, nearly 3,000 a month. That would be, if it was 3,000 a month, that would be... 36,000 a year. So we are at 30,000 a year, and we were at 60,000 a year in terms of the rate of engine production. Now, of course, you couldn't sustain this with lots of, without lots of new companies coming into the production business. So almost everybody that could build anything, uh, assembly, uh, was involved. Hardly a motor car, motor car accessory, or woodworking firm not fully occupied with aviation work. And here we see the car industry in Birmingham and Man Edgerton in, in uh, Norwich. 
uh, the furniture industry. Waring and Gillow were London manufacturers. Uh, William Lawrence and Company were uh, based in Nottingham. Coach builders, we'll hear a bit more about these people. And then there were a whole bunch of shipbuilders in, um, in Glasgow who grouped together to build aircraft. And there's just a couple of perhaps the less familiar companies there. The, Re- the Regent Carriage Company Limited, based in Fulham on the New King's Road. And um, perhaps the point here is that the telegraphic address is Car Bodies London, which gives a fair old clue to what they were doing before they started building aeroplanes. And uh, the Bath Aircraft Company, I don't, I know very little about them. They just say manufacturers of planes, propellers, struts, fuselages, etc. And they're based in Bath, and that's that's all I know about them. But um, nevertheless, these were the kind of companies that were being founded and brought into the industry uh, to sustain the, the demands of the First World War. And um, so there was a lot of contracting to these companies from of the, of manufacturing the designs of the main design firms. And um, what, we, what we have here are SE5As being built by Woolsey under contract from the Royal, Air, or the Royal Aircraft Factory's design. Interestingly enough, the Royal Aircraft Factory only built 250 SE5As of the more than 5,000 in total that were built. Um, then this is uh, DH9 fuselages at G&J Weir, who are one of the Scottish shipbuilders, and they were one of ten different contractors who were building DH9s, or at least had contracts to build DH9s. These are Sopwith one-and-a-half strutters at Westland, and these are Snipes at Kingston. And I have to say, I am quite uh, proud of the fact that when I worked at Kingston, I used to walk through exactly this design hall, this assembly hall, with Harrier fuselages in it, looking pretty much exactly the same, except for the fuselages. So um, that you, you had a tangible sense of the history there. And so this is a list of the main types. And of course, there were trainers being built, the de Havilland DH-6 and the uh, Avro 504, being the most numerous, together with the Royal Aircraft Factory designs. Uh, and then and the Sopwith Pup and Camel, of course, everybody knows. And then two-seater uh, reconnaissance or... or bombing aircraft, DH-4, DH-9, and then naval machines, particularly the short 184 flight pl- um, float plane and the Felix Doe F-3 and F-5 flying boats because the submarine menace was so important and there was a significant amount of effort. And, for example, the short 184 was contracted to 10 different firms. So it was clearly a very important um, component of the defence of Britain. Now, after the, after the First World War, the armistice came very suddenly. Um, and there was no immediate requirement for aircraft. And in fact, RAF manpower dropped by 90% <laughs> in 15 months. Now, that's a recession. <laughs> um, civil aircraft were actually down in 1922 compared with 1920. There were 25,000 aircraft on order at the time of the armistice, and in many cases it was found to be cheaper to just take the engines out and burn the rest than to do anything with them. Uh, And companies were hit with a thing called excess profit duty, which effectively taxed them on how much profit they were making at the end of the war compared with at the start of the war, or pre-war, 
And of course, if they had come into existence during the war, they were badly placed because they weren't making any money before the war. And so they did what all good um, capitalists will do. They closed down their companies, refinanced them, and opened them up with another name and walked away from the tax bill. And um, as a result of the uh, excess supply, a company called the Aircraft Disposal Company was set up at Croydon under the management of Handy Page to look after the stocks and try to make get some value out of them. And I'll talk about that on the next slide. Um, in the meantime, here are here's a list of companies that reformed. So Airco at Hendon became the de Havilland Aircraft Company at Stag Lane. The British and Colonial Aeroplane Company became the Bristol Aeroplane Company. Um, Central Aircraft uh, disappeared. Martinside disappeared. Newport and General Aircraft pretty much disappeared, although Henry Folland, who was their designer, went off to Gloucester. Uh, Graham White Aviation Company, we'll talk a little bit about later. And Sopwith Aviation and Engineering Company became H.G. Hawker Engineering Company Limited. And uh, the, the vast majority of the others either just went back to what they were doing before the war or at least stopped aircraft manufacturer. So one of the, um, one of the difficulties that the industry faced was the drag on its ability to sell new products by the leftover surplus from the war. So the Aircraft Disposal Company, sometimes known as Air Disco, uh, was formed under Handy Page's management in 1920 and took over one of the old factories um, at Croydon, the old aircraft factory, to store all this surplus. And they purchased the entire war surplus stock for a million pounds. And they guaranteed to pay back half of the earnings to the government. And you can see the size of it there. 100,000 magnetos, 35,000 engines, 10,000 aircraft. And they generously offered a rebate for companies purchasing aircraft that they had originally supplied. And you can see that for their, for their million pounds, they thought they had a hundred million pounds worth of stock. <laughs> and um, they said at the time, probably with complete honesty, but perhaps not a very happy picture for the rest of the industry, the presence of these stocks means that the industry has to face a period when little manufacturing will be required. So that was pretty painful for all concerned. So, I'm going to skip forward now to the emergence of a new area within the industry, the light aircraft movement. Now, what we have here is the de Havilland Gypsy Moth, tremendously important in terms of dem demonstrating that you could produce a safe, affordable light aircraft. Uh, this is called a Tipsy Bee. Uh, it happens to be my Tipsy Bee, or at least it was my Tipsy Bee, um, restored to flying condition. And this is a de Havilland Leopard Moth. All of these aircraft were built in London, at least in terms of Stag Lane producing lots of gypsy moths, although this exact example was actually built in France by Moraine Saunier, as it happens. Um, but the point here is that, you know, the moth was so dominant, 172 out of 288 private aircraft were <coughs> moths, which was 60% of all the private aircraft in Britain. And the only other types to reach double figures were the avian, the puss moth, and the bluebird, much, you know, trailing in their wake by a factor of 10, mostly. However, the fact that the moth was so successful meant that other companies were encouraged to come into the industry. 
And this is, um, this is quite important because some of these companies, like Heston and, and British Aircraft and Percival and so on, went on, and Miles went on to build very successful aircraft and to do repairs to aircraft during the Second World War. So they, despite there being relatively small concerns at this stage, they were to prove quite important a few years hence. So jumping to the few years hence, this is a little canter through aircraft production companies in the Second World War. There were the main design firms, and by the main design firms, I mean companies that could design from the ground up their own aircraft. And uh, clearly this is a very familiar list of names. Those picked out in red were those that were based in London, building aircraft in London. Those that are in this uh, rather strange colour um, are companies that, whilst not being in London, were very close by. So de Havilland were mainly at Hatfield and also Leavesden. Shorts in Rochester on the Medway, although they subsequently did disperse production, and Vickers Armstrong at um, Brooklands or Weybridge. So uh, essentially, there was a spread across the country, but there continued to be an important contribution from the London manufacturers. And then, as well as those manufacturers, there was shadow or dispersed production. And so you've got Austin and Morris Motors, um, Morris Motors built a lot of Tiger Moths. Uh, Roots Securities, who built a range of different types, um, including the Blenheim and the, uh, um, Blenheim and the Halifax, I think. Um, then you've got the, this is the Castle Bromwich Spitfire factory, um, which was initially intended to be managed by Morris Motors and was taken over, in, taken into the management by Supermarines. And again, here in red is another outfit called the London Aircraft Production Group, otherwise known as London Buses. Built 710 Halifaxes. And um, there were various other companies that, um, the smaller companies, some of those air, light aircraft manufacturers, you had the Mosquito being built by Airspeed and by Percival Aircraft. General Aircraft Limited were um, building uh, the Firefly. And Heston Aircraft mainly did embodiment of modifications onto aircraft. They built the prototype de Havilland Sea Hornet or did the modifications for it. They repaired 650 Spitfires and they built a lot of components for other aircraft. And then finally, we have the companies that just did repair. So this is um, a set of typhoons being uh, repaired, I mean, more or less built from the ground up, I think, at Marshalls of Cambridge, in, in, uh, at Cambridge. And um, so these were the people that were contributing uh, during the Second World War to aircraft production. <coughs> and by now, you can see that the number that are in London is comparatively reduced. But just to give a feel for what that production was like, here we have, you know, health and safety at work, operating up the ladders to build a Sunderland. Uh, if you think, I mean, I, when I first worked at Westlands, people used to say, well, isn't the assembly shop full? That's a full assembly <laughs> shop. <laughs> Short Sterlings. Uh, these are London Aircraft Production Group Halifax noses. Um, they were assembled at a place called Aldenham and then 
taken by road to um, Leavesden, where they were flown. And this is a nice publicity photograph of one of their women workforce uh, on a Halifax. And this is, uh, again, some ladies fitting out a mosquito, just like a plastic model. You've got these formed plywood shells. You fit out all the wiring and stuff, and then you glue the two halves together. So, moving on to perhaps a less successful period. Immediately after the war, the British aircraft industry, commercial aircraft, suffered. We had agreed during the war that transport aircraft would be produced by America, which led to some excellent machines, not least uh, the Dakota, the DC-4, the Constellation. In Britain, we had the Brabazon Committee, and um, until the Brabazon Committee Brabazon Committee designed, uh, developed various specifications for, for commercial aircraft. But until those came along, we had to rely on converted bombers like the, um, the Halton, the Stirling Five, the York, the Lancastrian. And, um, and then sadly, once the Brabazon Committee aeroplanes came along, they were almost all failures. So the, the Tudor, the Brabazon, the, the Princess, um, the Ambassador and the Hermes all pretty much failed. The Dove did quite well. The Bristol Freighter did quite well. And, but the only real Brabazon aeroplane that was, was wholly successful was the Vickers Viscount. However, we did produce good military aircraft. So here we've got the V-bombers, Victor Vulcan and Valiant, Hunters and Canberra, by any measure. Hugely successful aircraft. It's just amazing that under the straightened circumstances of the country, you could put all three V-bombers into production and into service at the same time while producing the Hunter and the Swift and putting those into service at the same time. And these, all these aircraft were flown within a three-and-a-half-year period from 1949 to 1952. And actually the Lightning, another good aircraft, in its first prototype form, flew in 1954. So between 1949 and 1954, we probably produced our best military aircraft, or some of our best military aircraft. Now, 1960, the government said, we can't have all these different companies building aircraft, you know, three V-bombers competing with each other. And in, when they placed the TSR-2 contract, they said, we want you to form a consortia. And the consortia was actually the British Aircraft Corporation, and so that was Bristol, Vickers Armstrong, English Electric and Hunting with this range of products. Hawker Siddeley, then Hawker Siddeley Aircraft Company Limited already existed uh, as companies like Abro and Gloucester and Armstrong Whitworth. And they were joined by de Havilland, Folland and Blackburn. And that became the two big companies, Hawker Siddeley and British Aircraft Corporation. Then... Later on, British Aerospace was formed and took some of these products into their portfolio and swept up some of the rest of the industry, Scottish Aviation with the Jetstream and Bulldog, and then developed some of their own aircraft. And, of course, these have all disappeared. Eurofighter's there, JSF or F-35 is there, and Nimrod MRA-4 has disappeared. So that's really the rest of the industry, 1960 onwards. So now I'm going to get on to the main subject, which is the major manufacturers in London. And uh, these are the big five. Um, 
de Havilland Aircraft Company at Stag Lane, Ferry Aviation headquartered at Hayes, but also making use of other London airfields, Graham White Aviation at Hendon, Handley Page, who started at Barking and then went Cricklewood and Hendon, and subsequently to Radlett, and Sopwith Stroke Hawker, Stroke Hawker Sidley, Stroke British Aerospace, Stroke BAE Systems, uh, well, not quite BAE Systems, because they were closed before BAE Systems was formed. Uh, so they were at Kingston with flying taking place elsewhere. So I just want to talk about each one of these companies. So Airco started out as the aircraft company, which is why it's called Airco. However, its chief designer was Geoffrey de Havilland. So the aircraft were known as Airco DH4, DH6, DH9, where the DH stood for de Havilland. And um, they were founded in 1911 as farming agents. They built a lot of aircraft. 3,877 de Havilland designs were taken into the RAF um, on, in April 1918 when the RAF was formed. At the end of the war, they suffered from that collapse in business. The company was sold to BSA to make motorbikes. And... Um, they ceased aircraft production. However, Geoffrey de Havilland and some of the other um, key members of the company bought the company from BSA, and it was reformed as the de Havilland Aircraft Company Limited uh, and moved from Hendon to Stag Lane in October 1920, and then focused on civil production with some very famous names here. And then... They went to Hatfield from 1930 and Stag Lane was sold for housing in 1933. And uh, that's the ad you've already seen, the, the uh, concessionaires for Henry Morris Farman. This is a pretty early um, image of uh, de Havilland products. That's what Stag Lane looked like in 1920-something. Quite where the Edgware Road runs, I don't know. Um, this is a DH-9. It's in the, um, the French Musée de l'Air at Le Bourget. It was built by Waring and Gillow, one of those furniture manufacturers. Um, the Gypsy Moth, of course, the de Havilland Dragon. This is the uh, oldest aeroplane operated by um, Aer Lingus. And a Leopard Moth. And that's what you see today. If you go to Stag Lane, you see a road called de Havilland Road, no through road which is slightly poignant. Okay, Ferry Aviation, um, originally at Hayes. They were founded during the war. Uh, Richard Ferry had been the chief engineer for the Short Brothers on the Isle of Sheppey. And he set up his own company, and the first aircraft they built were Short 187s, and that probably reflects the connection he already had with the, with the company. They went on to design a whole series of mainly naval aircraft, and they were one of the survivors in that post-war period because the Ferry 3 series was developed quite extensively. And although we see the 3D and Ferry 3F here, these aircraft were also developments of the Ferry 3 series. And then they built some the dramatically um, elegant Ferry Phantom biplane. The Ferry Fox, which embarrassed the Air Ministry by being faster than most of their fighters when it was a bomber. Then the Second World War, some well-known names there. Uh, the battle was obsolescent at the start of the war, which 
meant they did suffer high losses, but these naval aeroplanes served with great distinction. <coughs> After the war, uh, they did continue some flight testing at Heston, but gradually moved to White Waltham in terms of flight testing. They continued manufacturing at Hayes, and they built the Gannett, and then moved into some fairly advanced rot um, rotorcraft, and indeed the Ferry Delta II, the first aircraft to set a world speed record at above 1,000 miles an hour. In 1960, as a result of a further enforced rationalization, the helicopter business um, went to Westland Helicopters Limited, However, they didn't stop building aircraft, and, and here we have Westland Scouts being built in the Ferry Company. So this is a Saunders Row design, now in the hands of Westlands, now being built in Hayes. Uh, and also the RF Pumas were also built at Hayes. So Hayes continued manufacturing till about 1972. And what else we have here is that's the front office building on North Hyde Road, that's still there. Is a Ferry 3, Swordfish, Firefly, Gannet. All very successful aeroplanes. Graham White Company. Now, this is a company that did not have such an extended life, but the reason for including them is that they did produce the best part of 2,000 aircraft. And um, they're kind of interesting because it's, it's very much the history of a man. Graham White was to some extent, a self-publicist. He learned to fly, he took his aircraft flying in the States and elsewhere, and he earned no less than £10,000 as a result of that in 1910. He used that money to set up the London Aerodrome and to set up his company. So his company was formed in 1911. The chief designer was J.D. North, who was subsequently the chief designer for Bolton Pool Aircraft Limited. And he tended to build interesting aeroplanes, purely for exhibition flying, really. So the Sharabang was designed to carry as many people as possible. And I think there are photos of it with something like seven or eight passengers, all in a big bath-like open cockpit. It must have, been, must have been a very interesting experience to fly in. Uh, and they built quite a lot of aircraft um, as a contractor during the First World War, notably the DH-6 and the Avro 504. So as we see, nearly 2,000 aircraft there. But they kept having fallouts with the government. They, they were told that because of the shortage of decent timber, they should import and use an American wood called Swamp Cypress for building their DH-6s, which, you know, the name itself does not fill you with confidence. <laughs> anyway, sure enough, they, um, they weren't sufficiently strong. And then Graham White was trying to get compensation from the government because, of course, he paid his workforce for building these aircraft that the government wouldn't then pay for because they weren't satisfactory. But they weren't satisfactory because they built them of the wood the government told them to build them with. Um, so he had a hard time. He had lots of disputes with the government. And ultimately, his airfield was requisitioned in 1917. And he did a bit of flying after 1918. Um, but... He didn't actually get compensated for the requisitioning of the airfield for 12 years. And uh, so here we see one of his advertisements. Um, he's talking about Hendon being the best and most accessible aerodrome. Um, and here are the DH-6s, whether it's before or after the Swamp Cypress, I'm not sure. 
And this is a Blackburn kangaroo, which was after the First World War when he was trying to set up more, a more commercial aviation enterprise. Hanley Page, a very well-known name, um, did some initial flying at Barking, but the airfield was, well, the field was a bit much, was too small and too bumpy, too much of a field, in fact. And uh, But he also operated in various other sites, and mainly he ended up manufacturing aircraft at Cricklewood, testing them at Hendon, and there were some difficulties there, moving things like the prototype Hanley Page 0400 through the streets between Cricklewood and Hendon, and um, he subsequently moved out to um, to Radlett, to the north of London. He said, it's a lovely well-drained site, it's built on gravel, and he sold Crickerwood for housing, and um, it, the, the gravel ended up more important than the aeroplanes, because it's now a gravel pit. <laughs> Very famous for a series of bombers and large aircraft, and commercial aircraft. You can see here the number of bombers, the 0100, 400, 1500, the Hayford, the, the Hamden, the Halifax, the Victor, all bombers. Uh, at uh, one stage, Handy Page, I think, was a dictionary, the dictionary definition was a large aeroplane. Um, during the Second World War, the Halifax, the Halifax was designed to be built in modular assemblies, and it was built by English Electric, <coughs> um, in Stockport, London Aircraft Production Group, which is London Buses, and um, by Roots and by Ferry Aviation. After the war, obviously the Victor was a very successful V-bomber, and the Herald was taken over. Uh, Handy Page Reading um, essentially was formed from the, the, the rump of the miles business, and then developed the innovative jet stream, which really was the first twin-engine commuter business aeroplane. But it had great difficulty meeting its uh, weight and performance requirements, and ultimately they ran out of money. And so there was a forced liquidation, or a voluntary liquidation, sorry, in 1969. Uh, the company having remained independent and said, no, I don't want any government money in 1960. And ultimately the government didn't exactly rush to their aid once they got into trouble in 69. And... Um, few pictures started off building propellers. This is the Hanley Page Yellow Peril. Um, this aircraft is taking off from Crookerwood and the housing is already being built in the background. And this line across here is a fence to keep the oiks out from the airfield. Um, this is a London aircraft production group, Halifax at Leavesden. Well-known Hanley Page 42. Beautiful, elegant Victor. And, and the jet stream. And last of these large companies is Sopwith and then Hawker. Now, the company was founded in 1912. Uh, flying was done at Brooklands. Manufacturing was done in Kingston. And that continued all the way through to 1992. So there were 80 years of aircraft manufacture at Kingston. They built a lot of very successful early types. They broke a lot of records with them. Um, during the First World War, they really focused on fighter aircraft, and they continued to do so between the wars, although the Hart and Audax were, were bomber or army corporation, but the Fury was a single-seat fighter, and the Nimrod was a single-seat fighter, and then, obviously, a Hurricane Typhoon and Tempest. So uh, a real 
list of magnificent aeroplanes, and we also see in there the Sea Fury, which is one of the most powerful-looking and, and elegant, uh, the piston-engine fighters, and the Hunter, and then the Kestrel that subsequently became the Harrier. So, magnificent aeroplanes. There's the factory. I used to have an office here and walk through to here for lunch. Um, and that's what it was like after I left. It's now executive housing. Um, this Sopwith triplane is of interest. I'm going to say a few words about that particular machine later. Uh, you can just, just see some, some really lovely aircraft there. Um, sea Harrier, FRS2 as it was then, FA2 as it became. Um, the records, which aren't really legible to you, say duration eight, eight hours, 23 minutes. That will be in an early stop with aeroplane. And um, world record height for a pilot and three passengers of 8,400 feet. I suspect they were cold. Now, I want to say something about other manufacturers in London because it would be easy to think, well, that's it. It's Ferry and Handy Page and so on. But these companies on the next two slides produce more than 11,000 aeroplanes outside of that group of five companies. So at Acton, we have 500 aircraft from the Alliance Aeroplane Company. Their building, their, their factory is still there. Uh, it's got a big kind of uh, um, girder at the top of the building, makes it very distinctive. It was also used during the Second World War by de Havilland for building um, components for the airspeed Oxford. So we look at this, you know, Acton, 1,600 aircraft. Hooper and Company, they were a Royal, Royal Warrant coach builders, 600-plus Sopwith types. Um, British Codron and Newport, 750 aircraft. Uh, Cubitts Limited, 412 DH-9, and it was, it was their factory, which was also known as the National Aircraft Factory Number 1, that was taken over by the Aircraft Disposal Company for putting all that surplus material in. Palladium Autocars, a name to conjure with. And uh, then here at, at Hamworth, which was set up in the 1930s, we have light aircraft like the BA Swallow, BA Eagle, general aircraft with the Monospar series, together with some production of Hawker aircraft and very Firefly. And then they did lots of repair during the Second World War and also ran some, some very, very large training schools. And then... Whitehead Aircraft, 1,500 aircraft in the First World War. Really quite an important company. Hendon, I've already sort of expressed the fact it was mainly flying schools. And in terms of manufacture, that's true. But it was used by the other manufacturers that were local to Hendon for their production test flying. So... Um, Handley Page and Newport and General Aircraft were both in Cricklewood, but they were using Hendon as their flight test airfield. Heston was used by Ferry Aviation just after the war, and Heston Aircraft um, produced their own designs from before, and, and also they did repair, repair work during the Second World War. Kingsbury Aviation, making DH-6s, another kind of company on the fringes of our knowledge. Um, F.W. Berwick and Company Limited, 420 aircraft. Um, the London Aircraft Production Group, which I mentioned before, was made up of the London Passenger Transport Board, which really was London buses, 
um, Chrysler Motors, Dupal Bodies and Motors, Express Motors and Bodywork, and Park Royal Coachworks. And in fact, the first slide which I had up at the start of the lecture was showing wing manufacturing in Park Royal Coachworks of um, Halifaxes. So 710 Halifaxes, quite a large number. And then Harris Levas Limited, glider manufacturer, 2,500 aircraft dispersed around a whole bunch of woodworking and furniture companies around Britain. And in fact, whilst we're on this, I will also mention, <coughs> although it's slightly outside the greater London area, the Cooper Coles Aircraft Company Limited, Sunbury on Thames. They were advertising rustless fittings and metal parts for aircraft. And um, they were rustless because of the sheridizing process, which was invented by Sherrod Cooper Coles, who was the grandfather of Sir Sherrod Cooper Coles, who's in the audience today. So, a few oddities. We start with this Sopwith triplane. That one in the RF Museum is one of only three aircraft built by Oakley Limited in Ilford. And I think it's quite extraordinary. You can have a company that only built three aircraft ever, and one of them still survives. <laughs> one is so used to seeing replicas in museums, it's quite easy to glance at that and assume it's a replica. It isn't. That is the original aeroplane. Now, I've also just listed there some advertising slogans, which I'll read a few. So Hooper & Co., motor bodybuilders and coach builders, the King, the Queen, Queen Alexandra, King of Spain, King of Norway, coach builders to Queen Victoria, and King Edward. Now, that's showing off. <laughs> uh, London Aircraft Company Limited. Uh, complete machines and spares. Experimental and delivery flights by own pilot. Uh, Witten, Witten & Co. I love this. Manufacturers of the Witten piano. Uh, this Three years experience. Big stuff and best work. So, you know, one captures a certain element of the, the day, really. Um, and also, I think you can see that it isn't just aeroplanes, because they're talking about components, and a lot of this is because they could do metalwork, they could do woodwork, they can supply other contractors. Just a few actual advertisements. Cattle. Spars, struts, ribs to pass government inspection. The Alliance Aeroplane Company, they were at Acton. Um, Codron, world height record with three and four passengers. Um, wings, ailerons, tails and rudders. You need only assemble the parts. We make them. <laughs> the Ruffy Bowman School. There's some quite artistic advertising from the Hendon Flying School. And then the Central Aircraft Centre, and they were at North Holt. Um, so some quite attractive images there. And then another group, Whitehead Aircraft, who I mentioned built all those aircraft at Hamworth. Hooper & Co. with their long list of royal warrants, heavily emphasised on the page. Waring & Gillow, furnishers and decorators to HM The King. Um, Howard Wright, you know, Baron de Forest Prize, Mr. T. Sopwith's winner, used a Howard T. Wright biplane. Highgate Aircraft Company, another one that you probably haven't heard of, um, as in the London Aviation Company as well. When it says aeroplane woodwork, planes, nacelles, fuselages, etc., etc., planes, of course, effectively means wings rather than aeroplanes. 
um, and then Newport and General Aircraft, um, partly because although um, they, they collapsed and um, H.G. Hawker was killed flying a Newport prototype, um, the company later, effectively, people from the company took over a lot of the stock and set up the Gloucester Aircraft Company and the origins of the Gloucester Company uh, with Henry Folland moving from Newport in general to Gloucester. So that's pretty much it. I just want to uh, put up a summary slide. So there weren't that many major enterprises. What there were were lots of, lots of companies plus these five. And um, their main contribution came during the First World War when the whole of London's industrial manufacturing capacity became very important. And as we've seen from the companies I've, I've mentioned, London was a centre of manufacture, not just a centre of trade, and it was those manufacturing firms that were so important in this effort. And then most production moved out to the suburbs or outside the suburbs um, before the Second World War. So that's where we see the importance of those, those airfields. And then the shadow factory scheme was brought into place to further disperse large-scale production and minimise the risk of disruption due to air attack. There was a forced rationalisation in the 1960s and, um, and really after 1970 only Hayes and Kingston were still producing aircraft and after 1972 only Kingston was building aircraft until 1992. So that concludes my talk and I welcome any questions. Right, thank you very much, Ron. Uh, we have a little time for questions. Um, if you have one, could you please indicate and uh, one of my colleagues will bring you a microphone. Uh, one over there, please. <coughs> Were there any specific attacks on World War I aircraft factories? Not really, as far as I'm aware. I think when bombs were dropped, they, they were dropped on the operational squadron bases in France, and then when the Germans started to use airships and, and, and Gotha fixed-wing bombers, they were mainly um, non-precision attacks on the on civilian population. And uh, I don't think that they had either the capacity in terms of long-range reconnaissance or accuracy in, in terms of bombing to actually plan and carry out point attacks on a, on a single factory. So as far as I know, there were not any attacks on aircraft manufacturers during the First World War. In 1940... Um, the German Air Force attacked Bolton and Pauls at Norwich. Um, of course, by that time, they'd moved, uh, moved out the aircraft mm. industry. Uh, That's but, true, because Bolton Paul moved to um, Wolverhampton. That's right. I wonder uh, if that attack, <coughs> they were just out of date. Perhaps. It might well have been. And I think that um, the, one of the most there were a couple of very significant attacks in the Second World War. The Shorts factory at Rochester was very badly damaged, 
and the supermarine factory at Wollstone. And in fact, the dispersed production of the Spitfire, apart from the big shadow factory at Castle Bromwich, there were various other production sites and they were, they all used local airfields for flying. And so they, they realized that maintaining a large factory in Southampton wasn't tenable given the, the ability of the Germans to attack it. But in reality, by the, in the Second World War, I think whilst there was a period when the enemy was attacking airfields, manufacturers were always fair game. And I think it was rather like our own strategy in trying to disrupt German heavy industry with our bombing campaign in the Second World War, towards the end of the Second World War. And, and, and it had a definite effect. It caused sterling production to be moved to South Marston, for example. I'm always astounded um, at the speed and pace at which the aviation industry was established and grew. Without the Great War and without the Second World War, would the industry have grown at such a rate and would we have seen the advances in pioneering techniques? I mean, you mentioned the statistic of the number of aircraft needed to be built to sustain the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War. Without those two wars, is it unquestionable that the industry... I, would have I think you're absolutely right. The, the industry would not have developed at that rate. And one of the things that happened in the First World War was it was possible to produce a new design relatively quickly. And so you could be outclassed by the enemy and, and then produce something quickly to respond. So there was, it was much more active in terms of different designs. By the time we got to the Second World War, the Ministry of Aircraft Production had said fewer designs, larger numbers. And because by that time mass production techniques had encompassed standardization, it was a lot easier to use those techniques to ensure that wing parts built by some company in Loughborough could be assembled to an airframe that was coming together in Stockport or somewhere like that. And so um, in the First World War, between the aircraft that were flying just at the outbreak of the war and the aircraft that were flying at the end of the war, there wasn't a dramatic change in technology. The configurations were pretty much the same. The engines were mostly better, but some of them were worse. The, the, uh, um, they decided to standardize on the ABC Dragonfly engine, and it was horrendously unreliable. It, it, it ran its normal cruising speed at the first torsional vibration frequency of the crankshaft. And there are, there are cases of aircraft being flown from their factory to Maltresham Heath and having to be scrapped on arrival because they were in such a state. <laughs> the aircraft, not the engine. I mean, the engine was ruined as well. So we didn't, it wasn't a smooth progression. Uh, during the Second World War, it took a lot of effort to, okay, getting the Spitfire up and producing the Mark 9 and so on. But when Martin Baker came along with the MB5, which is a magnificent aeroplane, it never came into production because it, it fell foul of the standardization and the fact by that time we didn't need that kind of fighter and we had the Americans fighting with us and lots of long-range Mustangs and things. And so um, we just built large quantities of individual designs, large quantities of Spitfires, of Hurricanes, of Lancasters, Mosquitoes, uh, Tiger Moths, bow fighters and so on. But uh, it... Miles Aircraft kept producing innovative prototypes, sometimes without the authority of the uh, aircraft production people to do so. And they never really uh, got off the ground. I mean, they got off the ground physically, but not in terms of entering production. Um, and so I think that 
There would not have been a driver without both wars. But by the time you got to the Second World War, commercial aviation was starting to bring out key features. So the stress skin monoplane with uh, retractable undercarriage, variable pitch propellers, and decent flaps already existed before the war. So that had been driven by commercial developments, predominantly outside Britain. We still had the lovely HP-42. Uh, I was reading a book recently which mentioned that a lot of the German aircraft companies in the Second World War were building their factories underground. Were there any, ever any plans to do the same in the UK? I'm not sure, although the, the, the Hooper & Co. company uh, was clearly hard to find because I'm, I'm, I can't remember verbatim the words that I found, but the, the flight reporter went to see the factory and said that it would be very hard for the enemy to attack it as he found it very difficult to find even at the ground level. <laughs> but um, we, we never went to that extent. But the, the Germans um, were producing innovative designs. The fact is by the end of the Second World War, every single German design office had swept wing jet aircraft on the drawing board. They were also using slave labor. Uh, they were using, you know, Poland and the far-flung regions to, to build aircraft which they thought, you know, keep away from the bombing effort. And in some respects, there's plenty of debate about, you know, how the war was won. Was it, was it just the mass attack of the Russians? Or was it the American strategy of bombing the ball bearing and synthetic oil plants, which meant industry found it very, very difficult to um, to produce high-quality products. They had high-quality designs. There is no doubt about that. They had some exceptionally good aircraft on the drawing board and in beginning to be tested. And I think, you know, if the war had gone on another three years, it would have given us a very hard time. We would not have been able to sustain the bombing campaign, I don't think, in the face of significant numbers of ME-262s, for example. Um, my name is Tony Pert, and I was a director of contracts in the MOD, and so I was dealing with your company. And um, from 1960 onwards with the uh, unification of the uh, industry. And I was always curious about um, how it was earlier on. And I, I saw a few things from World War, World War I times. And in the um, museum at um, Middle Wallop, there's a specification for a World War I aircraft, which is uh, one side of A4, what, yes. full scale. And it just says how high, how long it'll be in the air, and, and various things. And it ended up by saying, and the aircraft should, should not be too difficult for the pilot to fly. Yes. And, and also, I believe that the, the government buyers treated the industry like dirt, you know, mm. as if they were buying lorries. You know, there yes. was nothing, nothing sophisticated about the, uh, the, the issue at all. I think that's absolutely true. I, I've seen, I think, the, the early requirement for the F7-30 fighter, which was a complete dog's breakfast in terms of its airplane designed by committee and it was only supermarines who, who built an aircraft to the specification and said well that's not much good who then produced the Spitfire prototype which then had another specification written around it to go into production so it was essentially a private venture development and I have seen also I think um, the Lysander um, requirement which I think was two pieces of paper something like that and we have, you know, despite all the claims in the procurement world of moving to capability-based requirements where you don't, you don't absolutely define every aspect of the solution, 
we were in a period where where the um, the procurement agency thought they knew better than the company exactly what they wanted and tried to write it down, which left no freedom for design trade-offs and did not necessarily, you know, the aircraft might meet the specification, but that didn't mean it was necessarily fit for purpose. Nowadays, we tend to try to look for products that are fit for purpose and debate more openly with the customer the necessary compromises that have to be made to achieve that. Still not a very friendly relationship necessarily. It's curious because just, just taking TSR2, which is where I started, TSR2 was over-specified by the Air Force who wanted everything stuffed into it. Uh, it got cancelled. The Harrier was never intended. And uh, it was, it was you know, the uh, sort of yes, I think experimental and private venture idea. The Harrier is a good example to my mind, and there are other people in the room who could, could uh, add to this if they wanted to, I think, of a product that emerged because the government was sufficiently prepared to invest in novel research to allow the P-1127 <coughs> to come to fly and then to um, at least support the development into the Kestrel, which was subject to operational evaluation on a tripartite basis. And once that had happened, it was evident that there was the potential for an operational product there, and so then the Harrier emerged. But the length of time from the first flight of the P-1127 to the point when the Harrier entered service was really quite long. And nowadays, I find it quite hard to believe that the UK specifically would go and pick a radically new configuration and say, that's, we're going to back that with our money on day one. At least there would be backup plans, whatever. And actually, cost of development is so high that it's quite hard to imagine doing that. So even Concorde. Concorde was an act of national will between ourselves and the French. Nobody will pretend it made any money, but having flown on Concorde across the Atlantic, I can say it was a great experience. And as an aeronautical engineer who went to university in the year when Concorde first flew, and I also had a tour around Concorde uh, in the Heathrow maintenance base two weeks before it went out of service, it pretty much has defined a lot of the aeronautical part of my career and a magnificent aeroplane. But it made no money. It made no economic sense, actually. Unlucky as far as cost of oil and things like that, but, but really like the Brabazon aircraft, it, it was, it was assuming that the people with, the few people with deep pockets would sustain the business, and, uh, that isn't necessarily a good bet. Did the spread of the suburbs of London cause conflict between housing and the manufacturing plants? Brooklyn's, for instance, adjo- virtually adjoins St. George's Hill. Mm. Is in stockbroker well, country. The um, the things that are evident is that someone like Fredley, Frederick Handley Page uh, kind of had an eye to how can I make some money, and he probably decided that selling the airfield for housing was much better. You know, maintaining his factory because he maintained his Crickerwood factory. It's now part of Crickerwood Trading Estate at the corner of of the development. But he probably thought that was much better business, particularly after they had found they could move to Radlett. And uh, I'm not sure about Stag Lane. One suspects there was much the same sort of thing. They sold, they sold Stag Lane for housing. So I think that there was an opportunity to probably make a large amount of 
cash inflow to the business in a relatively simple, low-risk fashion, which must have been quite attractive compared with building aeroplanes. So, so what tended to happen was that the manufacturers said, OK, we know which way the wind's blowing. And it was really only the creation of Heathrow Airport that then caused Heston and Hamworth to be not viable. And so they, they were exited largely because they conflicted with Heathrow Airport. And um, so I wouldn't say that it was conflict with housing. I think with the, the housing, most of the manufacturers shrugged their shoulders and found somewhere else to do it and made money on the way. And it was really only the creation of Heathrow Airport that, you know, not because of the airport itself, but because of the flight paths that are involved, that meant those other West London airfields weren't viable. Right, ladies and gentlemen, um, I think we are very grateful to Ron for a very interesting talk delivered at relatively short notice. I thought I knew a fair amount about the aircraft industry in London, but certainly Ron's come up with some firms I've not come across before. I have the delight, sort of, of coming past Radlett on the train twice a day, I'm pleased to be able to report that it's recovering from having been a gravel pit. Um, you will now see sheep grazing on there. Um, there is talk of building a refuse incinerator on the site, but um, that may not happen, touch wood. Um, I think Sir Fred would also have been quite devastated to see the M25 cut through the airfield as well. Um, you may not be aware that the society is working with English Heritage to try and get a blue plaque placed on the railway viaduct where the Short Brothers had their factory in Battersea, I believe. Uh, yes, the railway arch is next door to Howard Wright, I think. Indeed. <coughs> um, so we are trying to um, commemorate part of London's industrial past does London actually manufacture much nowadays? I really don't know. Um, the the advert, I mean, Ron mentioned all these air, um, furniture manufacturers who were involved in um, building aircraft, particularly in the First World War. And I was rather taken by the advert for the, the firm who said, we make the, bit, the bits you put them together. I thought, Ikea? <laughs> But, Ron, we're, as I said, we are very grateful to you. Um, it's been a very interesting talk. If the audience will join me in the usual expression. Thank you.